0: Good afternoon, everyone, and a very warm welcome to this session on Utopias in History. Uh, this is the contribution from the LSE's International History Department to the general theme of the uh, Literary Festival, which is Utopias. And um, what we thought we would could most usefully contribute would be some case studies, which will, I suppose, showcase the range of the department's expertise, but we hope will also complement very well the more theoretical and literary and cultural studies approaches that are being built into the festival over the next few days. Uh, My name is David Stevenson, I'm a professor in the department and three of my colleagues here will be talking um, about utopias in (coughs) history. And um, we have three experts who range fairly widely in time period and in geographical space. But first of all, Tim Hochstrasser, my colleague here, will be talking about who's an expert on eighteenth century political ideas, and um, will be talking about, as you can see, utopia and dystopia in eighteenth century political economy. Um, he'll be followed by Dr. Patrick Scanlon, whose expertise is on slavery and emancipation. Um, and particularly on the history of West Africa, but also on the history of the UK. So that will be more of a 19th century contribution. And finally, Kirsten Schulze, who's an expert on the history of the Middle East and also of Indonesia and Southeast Asia, and particularly on political (coughs) Islam, and will be bringing us right up to the present and looking at ISIS. Um, so we have three widely varying topics, but I think there'll be some common ground running through them, um, and we're going to have approximately 15 minutes for each speaker, and then we'll be opening up for discussion and questions and answer. And we, we'll be aiming to end the session about five minutes to two. So um, thank you very much once again for coming, and um, Tim, the floor is yours.
1: Thank you very much, David. Well, it falls to me to offer some definitions to uh, put the uh, conversation into play. And one might as well start with uh, Thomas More's definition of utopia, the title of his uh, famous book of 1516. Whatever one thinks of Thomas More, whether as St. Thomas More, Sir Thomas More the Lawyer, or Thomas More the Monstrous Hypocrite, as portrayed by Hilary Mantel in Wolf Hall, he was certainly a very knowing and clever and funny Christian humanist. And so it's therefore no surprise that he packed a lot of meaning into the title of the book that he published under that word, utopia. Because there's a deep pun in the Greek that he is using for the title of that work. Uh, And the pun, I think, takes you to some of the heart of the matter when it comes to discussing utopias as we understand them today. The Greek root of the word is topos, place, uh, and then two words which have the same sound, O-U, U, which means uh, no, and E-U, which means good or well. So we have no place, we have good place, and we have the possibility that there is no good place, or that the good place may not exist in the here and now. And I think that takes us into some of the levels of the subject uh, straight away. We're dealing here with a fantasy projection of a world that is better than our own. And this matter is rather more than simple escapism uh, and entertainment. It's aiming to offer a vision of an improved here and now or a world beyond our own, which either evokes a past golden age or a future projection, vision or prediction of what this world might become, It also has the possibility of offering a critique of the present by implication. It offers didactic possibilities for comparing the present with a possible future or a better past. Uh, And it offers possibilities for satire, too. And that, of course, takes us straight into the realm of dystopia, the opposite of utopia, which is using the utopian framework uh, to project a world that is worse than our own, or a nightmare world, or a set of inverted values that, for the purposes of argument or satire, are worth considering. Now, what about the motivations of utopian uh, writers? Well, it seems to me that there are two obvious ones. One of them is inspiration, as you would gather from what I've just said, inspiring with a vision uh, of the uh, future. And this often lies uh, behind many of the religious or ideological uses of utopias. If we think of some of the locations that are associated uh, with utopias, they are often rural, paradisal retreats beyond the hurly-burly of this world. The Garden of Eden, the Arcadias associated with Philip Sidney and those who are evoking that whole Greek tradition of retreat from the world of business. And this seems to be a cross-cultural phenomenon too. One can find it uh, in Chinese utopias, the whole concept of the peach-blossom spring, which is analogous uh, to uh, the garden motif as a utopian retreat. So all those layers are there, I think, in Moore's uh, uh, work of 1516. But the next point to make is that, of course, there were utopias before utopia. Moore may have distilled in the title a lot of the meanings that we take around with us now. But from Plato's Republic onwards, there have been works, not specifically, called utopias, which have explored these utopian dimensions. Jewish, Islamic, Greek, Roman literature and philosophy are full of utopian possibilities. And I think the best examples of utopias in literature and in philosophy are those that manage to combine all of the various functions that I've listed above, while never quite really really revealing their hands. Plato does this in the Republic because on the one hand you have the theory of the forms, the idealistic reaching out to a world of imagined possibilities beyond the spoiled world we inhabit. We also have the political program of the philosopher kings offering a program for rulership and also a nuts and bolts didactic program of education. It's all of these things at the same time and the same is true of Moore's text of 1516. It's it's Chronically and irremediably ambiguous. It has been claimed by all sides in the utopian debate and scholars can't even decide now whether it is entirely serious or entirely comic or entirely satirical or all of those things at the same time. But that surely was Moore's inten- intention to keep all of those elements balanced in one framework. If one generalises broadly across utopian literature, one can say that perhaps the following characteristics are to be observed. That it can be said to be timeless, offers a degree of egalitarianism, and a freedom, crucially, from internal social and external international strife. Okay, so much by way of introduction, I now want to move on to my own focus on the 18th century and on the world of political economy. Well, why focus on these two? Well, I think for historians, in particular, my colleagues will no doubt have more to say about this. Utopias are very useful in successfully crystallising and dramatising the tensions, fears, and conflicts of a particular age. They offer a window into social anxiety uh, and social myth- mythology that can often be quite revealing. And one of the key conflicts in the Enlightenment era was between the rival demands of the in- of individual self-fulfilment and social virtue or duty to the community. Does it pay to be vicious or virtuous was a central question in the political economy of the age. What we now know as economics, where the boundaries of the self and our duty to others in an expanding commercial society are very much in the frame. And utopias were a good vehicle for reaching a public because in a new emerging public sphere, there is a larger audience now for travel literature, literature of adventure and stories, where morals can be pointed through a narrative or dramatic framework. Hence the success of Gulliver's Travels, which I'm not really going to be focusing on in my talk, but I'm happy to talk about afterwards, uh, but also the success, crucially, of Voltaire's Condide, which is the first text that I really want to talk about this morning. Candide, published in 1755 by Voltaire uh, as a moral fable (laughs) that can be read as both an adventure story and as a tract for the times, is an attack, of course, on utopian thinking. It is an attack on the view that there can be uh, this best of all possible worlds, and there are endless examples in the text of the foolishness of such a notion. But also, tucked away in chapters uh, 16 to 18, is a vision of what a utopia would have to look like in the modern world. It's the so-called El Dorado episode. In this particular area uh, of the world, modelled on the Jesuit um, uh, colony of Paraguay, uh, there's no engagement with uh, the wider world. It can only be a utopia because it's inaccessible. That cuts it off from the distractions of international conflict and makes the state possibly self-sufficient and without the need for laws or prisons or complex economic structures, and where gold is so common that it acts as pebbles lying on the ground rather than as a unit of value or or of exchange. There are no churches, only a religion of affirmation and praise of of a single god. Voltaire is basically taking all of the things that he didn't find in Europe and placing them in a not a garden this time, but a state that is locked by mountains and therefore protected from the evils of the age. But critically, Condide and Cacambo leave this utopia because they get bored with it. Frankly, utopia on this basis, with the suspension of normal uh, day-to-day life, is too boring, uh, too predictable, uh, and uh, too... Um, flat in its contours to appeal. I want to turn next to talk about Bernard de Mandeville, uh, who, in the Fable of the Bees, provides perhaps the most significant dystopia uh, of the 18th century, which, unlike Voltaire, seeks to find value in the very evils of the age that Voltaire's utopia sought to Avoid. What Mandeville did in this text, which originally started off as 423 lines of doggerel verse published in in 1705 and then became a much larger and more complex text uh, as he developed it over the next uh, two decades, is that he took all of the areas that caused contemporary anxiety, international competition, regular warfare, the pursuit of luxury, consumerism, personal greed and aggrandizement, and proclaim them not as vices but actually as the lever and basis of prosperity. Private vices make public benefits. The grumbling beehive that he, predict, that he describes here thrives on vice and competition and wastes away when traditional duty, virtue and community spirit is observed. So taking the model of Virgil's Georgics, the stable beehive, he turns it into a grumbling hive of angry, acquisitive, self-interested uh, individuals. And just to give you the argument, here is the very end of it, uh, the moral uh, that ends the poem. Fools only strive to make great and honest hives." To enjoy the world's conveniences, be famed in war, yet live in ease without great vices, is a vain utopia seated in the brain. Fraud, luxury, and pride must live whilst we the benefits receive. Hunger's a dreadful plague, no doubt, yet who digests or thrives without? Do we not owe the growth of wine to the dry, crooked, shabby vine, which, whilst its shoots neglected, stood, choked other plants and ran to wood? Blessed us with its noble fruit as soon as it was tied and cut. So vice is beneficial found when it's by justice lopped and bound, nay, where the people would be great as necessary to the state as hunger is to make them eat. Bare virtue can't make nations live in splendor. They that would revive a golden age must be as free for acorns as for honesty. And in a sense, that throws down the gauntlet to all the political economists, Hume, Smith, Hutchison, and others who follow in the later uh, 18th century. And much of their work is about rebutting or accommodating themselves to the disturbing implications of this dystopian vision that virtue is in fact a mug's game and that unsocial sociability, in other words, the social effects of everyone acting selfishly, is the way forward. Hutchison tried to find a way through this by saying that we all have an innate moral sense which governs the way in which we uh, deal with other people and it's not all about self-interest but that ultimately did not find favour. Smith and Hume tried to come to a much more subtle accommodation with Mandeville's views uh, and Smith in The Wealth of Nations tries to present a deliberate uh, trade-off between accepting aspects of Mandeville's views while retreating from their motivations. Interestingly, he takes over, at a crucial uh, point in his argument about the division of labour, almost exactly the same language that Mandeville uses. This famous quotation here, which begins, observe the accommodation of the most common artificer or day labourer in a civilised and thriving country, is taken more or less word for word from one of the notes in Mandeville's Fable of the Bees. I won't read through it all here, but it's basically a description of how so many people are involved in producing the simplest of garments for the simplest of men. What a variety of labour is employed about each of them. And then we're aware that without the assistance and cooperation of many thousands, the very meanest person in a civilised country could not be provided with the easy... uh, even according to what we falsely imagine, the easy and simple manner in which he is commonly uh, accommodated. Here Smith is accepting Mandeville's case that we cooperate with others, not out of virtue or out of altruism, but because that is the best way of achieving our own goals, self-interest made social. But Smith, as I've said, also tries to stand back from the implications of Mandeville by trying to reclaim the traditional moral high ground through his own concept of sympathy. In a book that's not so well known as The Wealth of Nations, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, published in 1759, he argues that our behaviour towards others is not simply based on self-interest, but is in fact based on a desire for approval and praise from other people. And this ultimately persuades us to behave well in order to gain that approbation from other people. But as many people have pointed out, both economists such as (coughs) John Robinson uh, in the 20th century and also many moral philosophers in the 20th century, this is not really an answer to Mandeville. It's a rather sophisticated sideways uh, move. Uh, the tensions that are exposed by the Fable of the Bees and its celebration of private vice remain uh, in Smith's system uh, and are part and parcel of the debate that still uh, rages around Smith uh, today. Now, as a final observation, I want to point out something that, again, is not much noted in the literature on Smith, and that is that the very last paragraph of Book Five of The Wealth of Nations, at the end of that huge text, is given over to a discussion of of utopian thinking in present-day 18th century England. The Wealth of Nations ends with a specific attack on the dangers of utopian thinking in politics. Smith argues, coming bang up to date in 1776, that the whole of Britain's policy towards the 13 colonies of the United States is based on a fantasy utopian notion of empire. Instead of which, the politics of empire should be hard-headed and not based on wishful thinking. It stands as a powerful warning, I think, this last paragraph, against the emotive power of utopias and dystopias. Uh, They can be more influential in shaping our hidden assumptions than we actually think. I'll just read through the paragraph as my conclusion. The rulers of Great Britain have for more than a century past amused the people with the imagination that they possessed a great empire on the west side of the Atlantic. This empire, however, has hitherto existed in imagination only. It has hitherto been not an empire but the project of an empire, not a gold mine but the project of a gold mine, a project which is cost which continues to cost and which, if pursued in the same way as it has been hitherto, is likely to cost immense expense without being likely to bring any profit. It is surely now time that our rulers should either realise this golden dream in which they have been indulging themselves, perhaps as well as the people, or that they should awake from it themselves and endeavour to awaken the people. If the project cannot be completed, it ought to be given up. If any of the provinces of the British Empire cannot be made to contribute towards the support of the whole empire, it's surely time that Great Britain should free herself from the expense of defending those provinces in time of war and of supporting any part of their civil or military establishments in time of peace and endeavour to accommodate her future views and designs to the real mediocrity uh, of her circumstances. Something one might say of, of a paragraph for our own present times as well. Thank you very much. Right,
2: so Tim is absolutely right to point out that utopian plans are a window into the fantasies and the anxieties of a particular time and place. Um, But in the next few minutes, I'd like to move from the vain utopia seated in the brain uh, that Tim described, from the world of erudition and imagination to the much messier world of everyday life, and take a look inside a few examples of what Mandeville called the grumbling hive. So I want to take a look at what it means in practice... uh, At the the turn of the 19th, uh, at at the end of the 18th, and the beginning of the 19th century, to try to build a colony uh, in West Africa that's inspired by and inflected by the theories of political economy that Tim just described, to figure out in practice what free labor meant and what freedom meant. So let me introduce you then. uh, Let me introduce you uh, to five men present at an unlikely meeting in a remote and unlikely place in West Africa nearly 200 years ago. The setting was a beach outside of Campilar, a fishing village on Sherbro Island, south of present-day Freetown, Sierra Leone, which you can see here on the map. One of the men was John Cazell, the headman of Campilar. Cazell had been born in West Africa, but but raised in South Carolina as a slave. Cazell had escaped the plantation and joined the British side in the American War of Independence. After 1783, he was resettled in Nova Scotia with tens of thousands of other people who came to be known as black loyalists. Gazelle left the Halifax Winters behind in 1792 and signed up as a settler in a scheme established by a British joint stock corporation called the Sierra Leone Company. The company hoped to found a kind of utopia, a West African colony based on the principles of anti-slavery. The company also hoped to build a new West Africa, led by Britain and initially settled by former slaves, and to replace the slave trade with commercial agriculture and with trade in luxuries like gold and ivory. Cazell had left the company's service by 1809 and struck out on his own as a merchant in this place, Campilar. He joined a transatlantic friendly society founded by an African-American Quaker named Paul Cuffey and hoped to attract free African-Americans as settlers to Africa. Now two of the other men present at this meeting were white Americans named Ephraim Bacon and Joseph Andrus. They were agents of the ACS, the American Colonization Society, an organization founded by a coalition of northern abolitionists and southern slaveholders dedicated to founding an American colony in West Africa settled by freed people. They had their own vision, their own utopian vision of a future United States, free of slavery, but also free of African Americans. The two other men present at the meeting. William Tamba and William Davis were former slaves freed from the Middle Passage by British efforts to interdict the slave ship, uh, interdict the slave trade after the abolition of the slave trade by Britain's Parliament in 1807. In Regent, in a, a village in Sierra Leone, they were prominent African converts to Christianity who hoped to establish a mission of their own under American protection. They had been recommended to Bacon and Andrus as translators. So this meeting point, this unlikely meeting in April 1822, is a a point of entry into a moment in the midst of an age of revolution when West Africa became a space for utopian schemes, a kind of blank slate for experiments in social engineering, colonization, and economic transformation by people like loyalist former slaves, by American slaves and freed people, by wage labor, by capitalism, and by Christian missions. But this meeting is also an important reminder of the wide gulf between the clean lines and confidence of utopian thinking and the blood, guts, misapprehensions, and unintended consequences of the real world. These five men were not on Campilar to discuss utopian plans for West Africa. They were there to haggle over corpses. A few months before that day in April, 88 African-American settlers had arrived at the village to prepare to found an an American colony on the African mainland. A deal that John Kazell had made with local chiefs collapsed, stranding the settlers. Within a few weeks, nearly two dozen were dead of fever, along with two white ACS agents. The graves had been dug on the island in a makeshift cemetery near the Tideline, and nothing had stayed buried for long. So today I want you to, to invite you to consider both the strangeness of this encounter between British, white American, African American, and Christian African visions of the future of West Africa and to suggest to you uh, some reasons why West Africa in particular was a focus for utopian schemes like this in the early years of the 19th century. First, why West Africa? The final decades of the 18th century and the first few decades of the 19th century are often known among historians as the Age of Revolutions. This famous image of the Liberty Tree Uh, a a famous tree uh, near Boston Common, represents the deep roots and broad, vigorous growth of new ideas and new modes of organizing political life and political economy that flourished in the late 18th century and which Tim just described. American independence transformed the British Empire. French regicide transformed Europe. And the conclusion of the Haitian Revolution in 1804 established a republic of former slaves in the heartland of Atlantic slavery. Amidst uncertainty the revolutionary era gave many people all around the Atlantic world an acute sense of living in very modern times and a desire to reimagine their relationship to the past and political organization in the present. In other words, the age of revolutions was an age of utopian possibilities. Old regimes seemed flawed and fragile. And one of the oldest regimes, slave labor, the kind of labor done on plantations like this one across the Caribbean basin and beyond, was a way way of producing commodities for the world market that was remarkably consistent and uniform across European empires, began to seem like a relic in this new world of liberty and wage labor. And yet, liberty trees did not transform the cultivation of sugar canes and cotton bowls quite as much as we might think. Rather than eroding in the age of revolution, slavery drew new strength from an emerging global capitalist order, Plantations and slave ships were securitized and insured and were buoyed up by, and indeed instrumental in making, a robust market and credit that extended across oceans and continents. Moreover, slave colonies were crucial to European geopolitics. Demand for sugar, a commodity overwhelmingly produced by enslaved people, was virtually inexhaustible in Europe, and control of the sugar supply was a gateway to unthinkable wealth. And the greatest sugar bowl of all The prize over which many European wars were fought in the course of the 18th century was the Caribbean. To many in Britain, colonies on the North American mainland were worthwhile only insofar as they might support the Caribbean sugar islands. As Daniel Defoe wrote in 1713, no African trade, no Negroes, no Negroes, no sugars, no sugars, no islands, no islands, no continent, no continent, no trade. But revolution only went so far. For Britons, the loss of the American colonies and the continuing value and political clout of the slave colonies of the West Indies turned the attention of anti-slavery activists to West Africa. If the Americas could not be reformed, perhaps Africa could be transformed. And so a number of European schemes to found colonies in West Africa were devised in the 1780s and 1790s. These schemes all shared many common features. All were designed by and designed to be led by Europeans all relied upon a much larger and subordinate group um, of people of African descent, either from the Americas or from West Africa, for labor, and all were intended to exploit the allegedly endless fertility of African soil and the ineluctable transformative power of wage labor. The British explorer and would-be colony builder Henry Smithman spoke for many British enthusiasts when he described the region, the region ne- near Sierra Leone as so fertile, that you may frequently see trees growing upon bare rocks, where you might as easily get a pint of gold dust as a pint of mold. And as fast as the cliffs break away, as fast the verdure increases. They had a way with words in the 18th century. Uh, <laughs> the rocks were ore, of course, and the soil beneath them seemed capable of growing anything. The slave trade, uh, Smithman record reckoned, was so barbaric and so all-encompassing that any colonies founded on the coast would effectively be founding an entirely new society and a new mode of economic life. Now, the only successful European colony founded in West Africa in the 1790s was Sierra Leone, which you can see behind me as sketched in 1803. Sierra Leone was a British colony established by the Sierra Leone Company in 1792. The company's directors included William Wilberforce and other prominent leaders of parliamentary anti-slavery. The capital, Freetown, was first settled by nearly 1,500 people like John Cazell, black loyalists. And you can see here behind me a beautiful watercolor, uh, one of my favorite images from the National Archives of Canada, of one of the black loyalists at work in Shelburne, Nova Scotia. Um, the black loyalists were a group of African Americans who had joined the British side in the Revolutionary War, a group of men and women who of cor- which, in- of course, included John Cazell. The company hoped that the settlers would accept wages in order to grow crops like sugar and like cotton, and that the colony would thus become a clearinghouse both for uh, trade goods made by people using free labor, and also for luxury goods like gold and ivory. But African political economy was far more sophisticated than the Sierra Leone Company reckoned. The settlers from the Americas resented being compelled to work on plantations in Africa, and the soil in Sierra Leone proved much less fertile than it had seemed to projectors like Smithman. Consequently, the company's plans faltered and in 1808, the company dissolved and Sierra Leone became a crown colony and John Kizell, one of our heroes today, became an independent merchant. Meanwhile, Sierra Leone became the headquarters of British efforts to interdict slave ships and the home of tens of thousands of former captives, people like William Davis and William Tamba, who were repatriated in the colony from slave ships. Former slaves became an important source of cheap labor for the colony. But the idea of a utopian transformation for and within West Africa survived. Missionary groups moved into Sierra Leone to transform the spiritual and also the economic lives of former captives. Now, conversion is an immensely complicated issue for historians. This image, and many, many others like it, exist in the archives of missionary work. But this is a fantasy. This is as much a utopian image as Smithman's fantasies of a fertile West Africa in the 1790s. We know an enormous amount about what missionaries thought that converts were thinking, but we know much less about the inner lives of converts themselves. And even William Davis and William Tamba, the two translators who were present at Campilar that day, are ultimately ciphers. They hope to establish their own African-led mission, but our only source related to their plans are sources produced by white missionaries. They were prominent converts in the colony, and they appear often in the records of the Church Missionary Society. In that sense, and in these records, they represented an idealized utopian vision of what a convert ought to do, what a convert ought to be, and how a convert ought to behave. But they also had their own ambitions, and their own, presumably, their own utopian ideas, which are ideas invisible in the archive. (coughs) British dreams of utopia in West Africa were shaped by the relationship of Britain to the West Indies. Slavery in the British Empire was a colonial institution. In contrast, slavery was at the heart of the new American republic. Each group interested in West Africa fantasized about remaking the region in their own image. Now, African Americans, both free and enslaved, were no exception. Many African American communities, particularly in the 1790s, had endorsed the idea of founding a West African colony. Indeed, one congregation in Rhode Island even sent a delegation of 15 members of a church to inspect Freetown in 1795 and uh, potentially to purchase land near the colony. As long as slavery existed in the Americas, even freed people were at risk, and so the appeal of African emigration uh, might seem obvious. And these early movements to return to Africa were as utopian as European schemes to colonize. They imagined a transformation of West Africa also, but a transformation led by people of African descent returning to convert and ultimately to civilize the societies that had sold them or their ancestors. However... Black-led emigrationist schemes were in tension with a white-led colonization movement. You can see the American Colonization Society Life Membership Certificate behind me, uh, signed by James Madison. Uh, The ACS's membership was overwhelmingly white and overwhelmingly southern. But even before the founding of the ACS in in, uh, 1816, as early as 1802, Thomas Jefferson had begun to propose sending manumitted former slaves from his own estates to West Africa. And this tension between the desire of black communities in the United States to be rid of a society where slavery was ever present and the desire of white communities, both abolitionist and pro-slavery, to be rid of black communities was at the heart and the, 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 the sort of tension at the heart of American dreams about the future of West Africa. And this tension was present at Campilar in 1822. It was built into the deal that John Caselle had cut with the ACS agents. A man named Paul Cuffey, whose profile, I hope you can see here, was a prosperous African-American Quaker merchant captain from Rhode Island and an early proponent of bringing free black settlers to Sierra Leone and concomitantly of opening a transatlantic partnership between African-American merchants in New England and West Africa. Cuffey founded a friendly society in Freetown to encourage trade, whose members included John Kazell, who may or may not be depicted here, uh, who is imagined at least in this illustration, and who sold Cuffey tropical lumber and so in February eighteen sixteen Cuffey sailed to Sierra Leone with cargo and just under forty settlers He died in eighteen seventeen but not before corresponding with his plan about his plans for West African settlement with Robert Finley, a white preacher from New Jersey, and with Samuel Mills, a white missionary from Massachusetts in eighteen seventeen just shortly after Cuffy's death. Finley co-founded the American Colonization Society, and in 1818, Samuel Mills arrived in Sierra Leone as its agent. In his letters to Mills, Cuffy recommended that the American colony be founded on the Sherbro, the island we saw at the beginning of this presentation, where, quote, a citizen of Sierra, of Sierra Leone could assist. In Sierra Leone, Mills met with the friendly society, of which Cazell, who was, of course, the citizen whom Cuffy had mentioned, is now present. After Cuffy's death, then, his correspondence in the ACS seized on the rough utopian outlines of his plans of a colony of African-Americans in the Sherbro near to and associated with Sierra Leone and recast a plan that was devised in the image of black solidarity uh, in a new image of white supremacy. The society praised Sierra Leone for the, the colonial government of Sierra Leone for its success in, quote, controlling the fugitive slaves of the southern states, a useless and pernicious, if not dangerous, population. Those fugitive slaves, of course, were the Freetown settlers, who were exactly the people with whom Cuffey had originally proposed to trade. Now, in conclusion, at Sherbro Island, the Sherbro River turns brackish where it meets the Atlantic. On on the 22nd of April, 1822, near this confluence of salt and fresh water just off the beach at Kampilar, several visions of the future of West Africa met. The remains of a British anti-slavery plan from the 1790s to transform the West African economy an African-American plan to escape slavery by emigrating to West Africa that had been co-opted and overwhelmed by the greater resources of white power in the United States, and a resurgent missionary Christianity. The meeting shows both the ambitions and the limits of the political and economic transformations of the age of revolutions. The revolutions transformed politics and economics on both sides of the Atlantic, and anti-slavery was indeed one uh, one of the great achievements of the era, But, and this is what I want to emphasize, it was much less revolutionary than we might might imagine. First, all utopian schemes for West Africa presumed African incapacity and assumed white supremacy. For Americans, these schemes were intertwined with fear of black freedom. For Britons, they were driven by a profound conservatism about the pace of emancipation and undergirded by plans to protect the value of the West Indies and to increase British formal power in West Africa. And so the end of the slave trade wasn't the end of the slave trade. More Africans made the Middle Passage after 1807 than ever before, particularly to Cuba and Brazil. And the end of slavery was not the end of slavery. Even the dream of a world without a slave trade, a dream of free labor in West Africa, was shaped and weighed down by geopolitical competition, ideas of white supremacy, and the expectation that anti-slavery itself ought to be profitable. Utopias have limits. Thanks.